Blackbird episode number 57. My name is James, and today I am joined by Jimmy Fritz. Jimmy is the author of the book Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, among other books. He's sort of a historian of rave culture, which is kind of neat, and an advocate of the use of psychedelics for medicinal and recreational use. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, but before we get into it, let me tell you once again about RU Texas. It is a little over a month before Fad Russell and I and Scott Horton, Deirdre McCloskey, Hotep Jesus, Cody Wilson, and Jack the Perfume Nationalist descend upon Buck Johnson's property just outside of Austin, Texas for the weekend of a lifetime. If you attend with us, you will get to be there for the recording of several episodes of Unregistered with Thaddeus Russell, where he's going to be interviewing those folks. You'll also get to take part in the interview as part of the Q&A sections. There is plenty of friend-making and fellowship, along with some of the best barbecue you will ever eat. It is, and I'm saying this without any exaggeration, one of the coolest things I've ever done. I was at Thad's Washington, D.C. event a couple of years ago, and man, is he back. That event only had one guest. This one has a total of, I believe, five, plus Buck Johnson will be there as well. It's one of the greatest things you'll ever do. So if you're interested in joining us, and if you can, head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash Texas And don't put the www before it. It's just blackbirdpodcast.com slash Texas. And there's also going to be a link in the show notes. I really want to see you there. There's a couple of VIP passes left. Thad uh, added 10 of those because they were selling so quick. And then if you would like to just join us for the general admission weekend pass, that's also available. And I hope to see you there. And with that, here is my interview with Jimmy Fritz. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Hey, nice to be here. So I found you like a couple of my other previous guests on podmatch.com, which uh, it's kind of just a plug. They're not paying me or anything like that. I've been making some really good connections on there. So other podcast hosts, if you're if you're listening, definitely check out Podmatch. Since we don't really swim in the same circles at all, I'm guessing none of my audience has ever heard of you, which is a shame because just reading the first couple of chapters of your latest book, I think there's probably a lot of stuff in there that will be of interest to my audience. So I'm glad that I discovered you. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself in your own words? Well, I'm originally from England. I uh, grew up in England. I hated the country always and left as soon as I could. And uh, when I did find, I spent many years hitchhiking around Europe, playing the guitar and busking on the street. And um, I uh, came back to England, you know, periodically over the next few years. But when I finally got uh, resident status in Canada, I vowed never to go back to England. So I didn't for the next 25 years. I recently, I've recently rediscovered it. In the last few years, I started going back and, uh, and then reconnected with it. And it's a different country now. It's a different country that I left. Mm-hmm. And so I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't expect to. Um, I was drawn back there by Facebook. My, you know, some old school friends popped up on Facebook. And so I went back to see, do a tour and uh, reconnect with them. And I had such a great time and saw the country in a completely different light that um, 
But I'm a resident of Canada now, and I've been here for about uh, 30 years, so I'm well ensconced. But I'm a musician and a writer and um, a uh, filmmaker. I made films for about eight years. I've written a couple, you know, numerous articles and a couple of screenplays, feature-length screenplays. Wrote a book uh, called Rave Culture, an insider's overview about the uh, global rave phenomenon. And most recently, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores everywhere. There you go. And yeah, I, I highly recommend, just from what I've read, the latter anyway, I haven't dug into rave culture yet. Where would you like to start? What, do you want to kind of just give us a give us an overview of how it came to be that you uh, were a drug dealer, so to speak? Well, I mean, I started um, experimenting with psychedelics when I was 15. So I'm 65 now. So uh, I, should, I should add that I was, I'm an ex-drug dealer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I started uh, experimenting when I was 15 and have uh, used and, and sold and bought and sold. I mostly bought and sold to, so that my friends could have high-quality psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And there's a big distinction between psychedelics and other drugs. I mean, I've never dealt anything like... Uh, you know, crystal meth or opiates or um, crack or any of that. So I've just specifically um, specifically been interested in psychedelics. And that's, uh, you know, the LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, 5-MeO. There's a whole bunch of them. But these are drugs that are used uh, for completely different reasons than people do opiates and crack and crystal. They do those things to, you know, to, to mask their problems psychedelics actually expose you to your problems. It's the exact opposite effect. And they're done by completely different people for for completely different reasons. So that's a big distinction to make. I make that distinction in my book early on. I talk about dumb drugs and smart drugs. Yeah. And uh, smart people do dumb drugs. They can end up being dumb people doing dumb drugs. If if dumb people do smart drugs, they can end up at some point being smart people doing smart drugs. But uh, if you if you just keep doing dumb drugs, you're going to be have you know have a lot of problems and a horrible life, and it's not going to actually solve the problems that you think it's masking and solving. So, psychedelics are actually uh, we're on the verge of a revolution in psychedelic psychotherapy right now, and we're finding out that psychedelics can actually help with a lot of uh, you know psychological problems and mental problems, and they can actually be solved with, through through psychedelic drug use. So they're actually become just coming into their own now. There's so much research going on that it's uh, it's hard to keep up with it all. You're pretty hard on alcohol. That's sort of the the mother of all dumb drugs in your estimation. Is that right? Well, just statistically, it seems to cause more problems. If you look at the stats on alcohol, you know, in terms of uh, ruined lives and broken families and, uh, you know, alcoholic parents and it's sort of the it's it's the drug that's the most available. It's the most legal. It's the most accepted, mm-hmm. and so it's very easy for people to just slip into it. I use alcohol myself. You know, I like to get drunk on a Friday night, but that's it. I mean, I don't drink anything the rest of the week, and I'm not. You know, I do I do it for fun. I do it because it's uh, you know it loosens things up, and you can have a good time. And like any drug, I maintain in the book too. I talk about the responsible drug use. I think any drug can be used responsibly. But you just have to know how to do it. And it's to do with dosage and frequency and intent. Mm-hmm. And if you're clear on all those things, then it's not a problem. 
I mean, so sometimes I have a drink, you know, I like uh, to drink some Crown Royale now and again, and I have a fantastic time and feel really good about it. <laughs> and uh, it's not a problem because I'm not doing it to mask my horrible life. You know, I'm doing it uh, to celebrate my life. And that's mm-hmm. the difference. That makes sense. So what about some of the other dumb drugs? Have you, I mean, have you ever dabbled in heroin or crack or meth or anything like that? And see, surprisingly, I've never tried heroin, although I've been around a lot of heroin. And in oh. my new book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, <clears throat> I uh, talk about that experience in, in England, actually, in the 70s. I uh, knew a lot of heroin addicts. I had uh, probably a dozen friends who were heroin addicts. And they had prescriptions. There was a prescription program uh, by the, you know, uh, the health service. And they would give you a prescription and you go every week and pick up your box of... Uh, syringes and a bottle of English pharmaceutical heroin. And then these people would just hang around and, uh, you know, watch science fiction movies and read Pulp Fiction. And uh, they wouldn't do anybody any harm. You know, they wouldn't be stealing. and They wouldn't be ODing. They wouldn't be uh, spreading disease and all this. So it really, it really solved the problem. But even though I was around a lot of heroin and a lot of heroin users, for some bizarre reason, I just never tried it. Probably the only the, one of the few drugs that I've never tried. I was never attracted to it. I uh, I liked amphetamines for a little while. You know they can pep you up, but they're uh, you know they're addictive and they're kind of hard on your system. So you can't do it for very much for very long. Whereas psychedelics, I mean LSD works as as good for me today as it did fifty years ago. So would you consider marijuana to be a smart drug or a dumb drug? I think it can be both. Actually, I mean. And again, it depends on why you're using it. If you're using it to elevate your mood and to be social and to have a good time and to laugh and, you know, and hang around with your friends, then it's a good thing. If you're using it, you know, I know people that are chronic smokers who just people that are very highly strung, they're very neurotic. They have a lot of, uh, you know, nervous energy and they smoke dope to to just suppress suppress their minds just to slow themselves down because their minds are racing and they're uh, they have a lot of neurosis and it, they're using it as an anesthetic basically and they'll smoke dope all day long and they don't even get high so you're not getting any of the benefits really you're not getting you're not feeling the levity or the euphoria you're just suppressing your mental activity to the point where you can manage your life mm-hmm. so then you're into the realm of self-medication again I think one of the one of the most clever things in the first chapter of the book anyway is where you say that some people do drugs to get out of it and some people do drugs to get into it. Right. And so I th- I think that's a pretty good summation of like either you're you're just trying to avoid 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 and get out of the world or really kind of dig in and do some of the like maybe I feel like a lot of people who do psychedelics in addition to the mind expansion, there's also a lot of mind exploration. I've seen, I've heard the analogy of when you do psychedelics, it's sort of like emptying out your your brain as if it were a filing cabinet so that you can like actually rearrange things. Does that, does that ring true? Yeah, yeah. I said, well, what, you, what you're doing is you're rewiring your brain. You're creating new neuro pathways for the same experiences. So you see things in new ways and you see new solutions. There was an edition of the MAPS newsletter. The MAPS are the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Well, they put out a uh, an, an annual uh, newsletter, basically. It's like a magazine. 
One year, it focused on all the people that had made major breakthroughs in science, technology, uh, chemistry, biology, genetics, all these people through the 70s, 60s and 70s, basically. And they're all retired now, so they got a chance to speak about it. So Rick mm -hmm. Doblin, the, the, the director, he contacted all these people and said, would they just write a short piece on how psychedelics had influenced their work and their breakthroughs? And um, it was extraordinary. There were dozens of reports, people that made major breakthroughs in computer technology, in uh, chemistry and biology and all these different scientific fields. And they'd made these breakthroughs through psychedelics. They had a problem, a hard problem. They couldn't get their head around it. They wanted to see it in a new way. They wanted to think in novel, novel, you know, progressive ways. And they found that, you know, LSD or psilocybin gave them that, gave them that ability to see something in a different way and to make those breakthroughs. And you'd be amazed. I mean, I list a bunch of them in, in the book near the back. But the, the last second to last chapter is sort of a wrap up of what's going on with psychedelic therapy around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I touch on there is just to outline some of the major breakthroughs in, uh, in technology and science that have been made specifically and specifically credited to psychedelic drug use. Have you ever cultivated Mushrooms? Yeah, I did once, actually. I got a piece on that in the book, too. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah, with mixed results, it's, very, it's actually quite difficult. It's not, um, yeah. it's, not that, uh, it's not that easy. You have to sterilize everything. You need an autoclave, you know, and then you get infected by everything. Every, you know, the bacteria, the molds in the air, there's, you know, the black mold and the red mold and the green slime and the black slime and this and that. <laughs> so a lot of them you just end up with a bunch of mold or slime. Yeah. Uh, if you get it right, I mean, I did. We did get some mushrooms, not enough to, uh, you know, not enough to sell them or anything. But um, it was an interesting experiment for a while, and it did kind of, you know, made made me realize that it's not it's not that easy to grow mushrooms. Yeah. People that do it commercially have really got their methods down, and they've and a lot of trial and error goes into it to be successful. I enrolled in a course on uh, cultivation. You know, I mean, they say, oh, this is for making portobellos or whatever, but. Uh, you know what it's actually for. Yeah, and it does. It seems like the kind of thing that in, especially in my house, like I live in a rental property that is just dank and full of bugs and moisture and grossness. So I'm guessing I probably wouldn't be too lucky here, but maybe one of these days I'll have like a, a nice little clean lab where I can, <laughs> where, where I can, where I can experiment. Is there a big difference between things like mushrooms and like ayahuasca on one hand, and LSD and other and other like manufactured substances on the other. Yeah, I mean there are qualitative differences between various psychedelics, and um, it really comes down to your your personal brain chemistry. I mean, some people, some people like mushrooms, and they don't like LSD. You know, some and, and vice versa. Uh, some people are not that keen on either of them because they're too long. You know, they take they're, they're too much of a time commitment. So they'll, uh, you know, gravitate towards something like uh, 5-MeO-DMT or, or uh, NNDMT for a shorter, a shorter psychedelic experience. There are similarities in the in the experience, but there's also qualitative differences. It's just a, it's, it's just a different feeling, and some people relate to one or the other. So depends what turns you on. How would you recommend to somebody who's never ever done any sort of psychedelics other than maybe uh, dabbling in marijuana? How would you recommend that they get started? I mean, would you say like fly to Peru and do an ayahuasca ceremony or find a buddy? No, with some I wouldn't shrooms? recommend that right off the bat. Yeah. 
I'd recommend uh, starting off on a low dose of mushrooms or LSD and going for a walk in the woods in the daytime in nature with a few close friends. And that's probably the best way, the, oh, the cool. best way to start. Just ease into it. Start with a quarter of a hit of acid or start with, uh, you know, a half a gram of mushrooms. And then go for a walk and hang out in nature, go to a beach, go to the jungle, go to a mountain and be in nature. And that's that's where you'll have the best experience. Don't do two hits of acid and go see a horror movie. And I know people that have done that and that's not recommended. <laughs> Is that where bad trips come from? <laughs> well, it can. Yeah. I mean, if you're having a bad experience. You know, psychedelics don't put anything in your in your in your mind that isn't already there. I mean, they don't have they don't they don't come with anything. They just affect the way you process information. So if you're you know if you're having a bad experience and you do LSD, you're going to amplify, and that's really what they're doing is they're amplifying your psychological state, and that's why they're good for therapy because you know people aren't aware of the mistakes they're making and the traps they're falling into and the blocks they have. And with psychedelics, it exposes them because it, it magnifies what's happening. It amplifies where you're at. And if you're you know, neurotic and anxious and depressive and you do a large dose of LSD, you're probably going to have a bad trip. So it's all about getting in the right frame of mind and the right frequency and dosage is very, dosage is very, very specific, for, especially for LSD because it's, it's psychoactive in very, very, very tiny doses. Three hundred thousandths of a gram is a dose. So, wow. you know, when you're dealing with such a tiny amount, you can. Re it's really easy to do too much. The classic one is where somebody says, "Oh yeah, I tried acid once." I mean, I've heard this story, you know, hundreds of times. Yeah, I did some acid once when I was at university or whatever, or you know, went up to a party and we did a hit of acid and nothing happened. Forty minutes later, nothing had happened, so we did another hit. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, they both come on and they have a terrible time because they can't talk or walk or think, or, you know, so it can be very disorientating if you do it in the right, uh, right, wrong place and the wrong frame of mind, which is set and setting, which is what Timothy Leary spent half his life trying to impress upon people and they still mm -hmm. don't get it. <laughs> I think people recognize the name Timothy Leary, but can you talk about who he was? Timothy Leary was a Harvard professor, a psychology professor and a doctor, a doctor of psychology. And he became interested in psychedelics because as he, um, as he said at the time, with conventional therapy, a third of them, he did the stats on it and he studied it. It was like a third of the people got better, a third of the people stayed the same, and a third of the people got worse. And then when you took that same group of people and you applied uh, current, you know, the current methods of talk, talk therapy or, you know, psychology, they, um, the stats were the same. A third of them got worse, a third of them stayed the same, and a third of them got better. So he thought, you know, there must be something better than that, something more effective. And uh, he discovered uh, psilocybin mushrooms and um, then LSD. And uh, he thought that they were the most amazing tool. And actually, 50 years later, you know, we're coming around to that idea now. We're seeing the potential and the, the huge potential in, in psychology and psychiatry and therapy for these drugs. And uh, he saw that in, um, in the you know, mid-60s. So, um, yeah, he was, a, he was a huge proponent. He was maybe a little bit too enthusiastic <laughs> because he started to, you know, recommend everybody to acid. And then he got into a lot of trouble for that. Some people say he was reckless, but uh, in my my opinion, he was actually a fairly serious scientist. I mean, and all the and all the LSD, he wasn't just handing it out to everybody and saying, you know, 
just do what you want, freak out. He was giving it to them in, you know, in, in, in controlled settings, controlled set and setting. I mean, that was his thing. And uh, he took meticulous notes on all of these sessions. He did thousands and thousands of sessions and kept notes on every single one of them to get the data, right? Because he was a scientist. And all those, uh, all those notes are now in a, in a library in New York. And uh, I don't know what happened to them now, but uh, they're all still there, the evidence of his uh, scientific integrity. But uh, yeah, he, he has a mixed reputation because some people thought he was a bit reckless. And because he was, you know, he was too outspoken about it, that led to LSD becoming illegal. Mm. And uh, some people blame him for that. I don't. What about Humphrey Osmond? That's a name who I had, I had never heard of, but uh, he was kind of a, another psychiatrist who was yeah. experimenting with. Humphrey with Osmond was, uh, was doing work in uh, Saskatchewan, Canada in the 50s. And they were doing work with uh, psychedelics on alcoholism. Mm. And they, um, they had incredible results. You know, they did these, these uh, long-term studies. They, got, they wrote papers. Um, they had indisputable results. I mean, better than any other therapy that was being used for alcoholism. And, um, of course, it, that all went downhill when it became le- uh, illegal. Sure. Do you have experience with microdosing? Yes. How does that work? And uh, why would someone do that over, over macro dosing, for lack of a better term? Well, macro dosing is more a sort of a, a, therapeutic, a therapeutic thing or recreational. And I think that's underestimated too. I mean, I've never done psychedelics therapeutically because I didn't need that. You know, I never felt like I needed any therapy. But um, I've only done them recreationally and inspirationally. I mean, they're fantastic inspiration, inspirations for creativity and for just, you know, thinking. So cognitive ability, right? They, they, they map new pathways. They, they literally physically and metaphorically expand your consciousness. So that's the way I've used them. But microdosing is, is very popular right now. There's, a, there's an epidemic in microdosing. Almost everybody I know is thinking about microdosing or they are microdosing, either psilocybin or LSD. And the idea is you just take a small dose. So you're taking a tiny dose, which is not enough to get you high. There's no psychotropic effects. But you get a subtle underlying rewiring of your neuropathways. So in terms of people that are, um, you know, anxious or depressive or, you know, have other issues, they can do this instead of SSRIs, for instance, like um, antidepressants which have mixed results and uh, there's some problems with them. And sometimes, you know, if you do do them for too long, you end up committing suicide, which is one of the, <laughs> one of the uh, unpleasant side effects of SSRIs. But um, microdosing, you, you're not going to have any real physical effect that, you, that, you'll, that you'll detect. So the idea is you like with, my, with LSD, for instance, it's a, a regular dose, a standard dose would be about 100 micrograms. Uh, microdosing, you do five or eight or maybe mm. 10. So it's just a tiny dose and it's enough to stimulate your neuro pathways. It's enough to like lighten up your, lighten up your brain and, and uh, increase your cognitive abilities, but it's not enough to make you high. So that's, that's the benefit that you're not, you're not getting high at all. And mushrooms also, your tenth of a gram, it's probably a a microdose, and then you're not doing it every year. You know, there's different methods. You know, people recommend different methods, but the standard one is you take your, your microdose once every three days, 
And you do that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that have been on antidepressants for a long time and they've got side effects and they're not really working very well and they're upping the dose and they switch to microdosing and, you know, it seems to, it seems to work. So there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of studies going on right now. There has been some done. You know, the problem with prohibition, of course, is because when, when substances are illegal, you can't do the research. Right. So we don't really get to find out what works and what doesn't until you do these studies and you do, you know, real scientific research on them. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, misinformation out there. You know, people will say that you know, marijuana cures everything, you know, and it cures cancer. And, well, there's no real evidence for that yet. <clears throat> Maybe it will, but, you know, not yet. I mean, if you cure cancer, then all the people, all the dope smokers I know that got cancer wouldn't have got it. Would they? <laughs> but there is a lot of legitimate. So now, now a lot of these things are legal, and they're becoming legal in you know in cities and municipalities and and states and provinces. And so uh, now there's real research going on, and we're really finding out that uh, there's a lot of different uses. And, uh, you know, over the next few years, we'll, uh, we'll probably be getting prescription LSD. <laughs> and that'll be, that'll be the day. <laughs> <laughs> we're a ways off that yet. But, uh, you know, I mean, we're on the verge of uh, prescription MDMA, ecstasy. Oh, okay. Um, that's that's going to happen probably within the next year. I mean, that's been going on. There's been studies going on with MDMA now for post-traumatic stress syndrome for the past uh, 25 years. And that's also spearheaded by Rick Doblin from MAPS. And I recommend anybody that wants to know, know about that to go to maps.org, M-A-P-S, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And it's miraculous what this guy has managed to achieve in the last 25 years with uh, you know, all these different levels of studies and dealing with the FDA and the EPA and whatnot, getting these things through. And he's on the final stages now. They've just been given a special designation for uh, you know, exceptional promise, where something is obviously working and it's obviously going to make it to the end, and then they jump it to the front of the queue, which is what they just did with MDMA. So we're expecting it to become a prescription medication within the next uh, you know year, two years at the most. Why MDMA? Why did that kind of leak through the puritanical? You can't study this stuff bureaucracy. Well, of course, it was illegal for a long time, but. Sure. A lot of therapists, when when MDMA was first made and it was first resynthesized by Alexander Shulgin in the uh, you know, in the early eighties, and um, he had a friend who started making it, and they were distributing it to uh, psychologists and psychiatrists all over America. So it was being used for years and years by hundreds, if not thousands, of therapists in their practices because they found that, you know, people would be in a super receptive state. They, all their anxiety centers were suppressed. They could talk about everything. They could reset bad experiences into their long-term memory, which is what PTSD is. And it just, it works really well for that. And so it works great for relationship counseling. They were using it for that. And, um, then it hit the rave scene, of course, and uh, everybody freaked out and everybody, you know, all these kids doing it. So they yeah. said so it was made illegal. But the therapists carried on using it, or some of them did. You know, it went underground and uh, they carried on. So some of them are the people that were behind the early research at MAPS and they've um, now been legitimized because it's uh, – and that they, they, they thought that the best, the best outcome or the best, you know, the best uh, – problem to use it on was PTSD. 
because PTSD is like a memory problem. So it's uh, you're not resetting that bad experience into your long-term memory. You're completely reliving this horrible experience all the time and it keeps popping yeah. up and you can't control it. And uh, with MDMA, they're finding like literally within one or two sessions, 80% of these people are completely cured. And the people that they took on on these studies, are they're like the chronic cases, people that had been through all the conventional therapies, people that had been through all the conventional drug therapies, and nothing had worked. These people were no hopers. <laughs> so they took them on, and uh, they've cured about 80, 80% of them. So that's, a, that's a, you know, a remarkable result for any drug or any treatment. And that's why it got this special designation, because they saw the second stage and third stage results and said, yeah, this is, this is something we need. And on top of that, of course, it's, it was a good move. It was a very smart strategic strategy because you've got all these soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and all these wars all over the world. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have PTSD and their mm -hmm. lives are ruined. Well, this is a way out. This is a cure. This is a, this is a real a real chance for those people to have a life. So I think that's why it's being taken a lot more seriously. So I think we see it as a prescription within the next year or two. That would be awesome. I know that there's a huge suicide epidemic among veterans as well. Which, yeah, if that's able to be treated yes. or prevented, then that'd be awesome. So is MDMA a little riskier or more more potentially dangerous than than other psychedelics? Not statistically. Oh, okay. I mean, it's uh, it's very it's a very low um, low risk for abuse because you don't you know you can't it's not addictive for a start, and um, there's been very 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 little cases. The the few cases that there have been have been widely publicized and blown out of proportion. Yeah. There's been people a few people that have died at raves. For instance, in England, in a ten year period where you know there were seven million doses a week being consumed. There were these nine supposed deaths from MDMA, and that was what the press, you know, the, okay. another another MDMA death, you know, another child dies from from doing E. And um, there was an organization, um, I think it was either Dance Safe or one of the one of the uh, uh, harm reduction groups. They went back and they looked at those nine cases, and they found that eight of them could be attributed to other causes. And one of them remained unknown. So, I mean, you've got a 10-year period. You've got millions of people, you know, gobbling ease every weekend all over the country. And you have one unexplained death. It's statistically insignificant. That's so, so funny. No, Obviously, it's not funny that somebody died, but it is really funny. Like, I mean, just growing up as a kid in the 90s, I had always heard, like, don't do ecstasy, don't do Molly. Those are those are super dangerous drugs. Like, you know, you'll you'll die of dehydration, things like that. And then well, that's a, that's a real that's a real threat. The dehydration one is sort of half true because yeah. the deaths that have been attributed to MDMA they were actually due to hyponatremia, mm -hmm. and hyponatremia is a problem that actually athletes get it as well. There was a recent case uh, near me where an athlete died of hyponatremia, and it's when you're overexerting yourself with physical exertion, and oh. you're drinking and drinking and drinking a lot of water, and you drink too much water, and it dilutes the blood-brain barrier, and that can cause uh, can cause death, right? So it's a, it's a problem uh, that athletes suffer sometimes, and it was uh, it happened at raves, not very much, but when it you know when it did, it was always put down to MDMA. But hyponatremia is a real problem, and it's it's a it's a overexertion and the overconsumption of water. 
So talk a little bit about rave culture. You wrote a whole book on it, so maybe we, we won't cover the entire thing. But like I remember, you know, being in high school, one time I think I heard about a rave. I obviously I wouldn't attend one because I was a good kid and the rave kids were bad kids. You know, obviously I've outgrown that that way of thinking, but I don't know really anything about rave culture at all. Well, it started out, I guess, in uh, well, it started out in England. There was a scene going on in uh, Ibiza, uh, an island, one of the Balearic Islands off the coast of Spain. Uh, there was a scene that happened. There was like a party scene, a late night party scene. And um, then ecstasy was brought over apparently by the Bhagwan Rajneesh people. <laughs> they, uh, they were the ones that originally brought it from North America to England. And then the DJs in England were going down and playing at Ibiza and they took it down there. And it met, sort of it had this happy marriage with house music. So house music was just coming out in the early 80s. And uh, there were, you know, people dancing to house music at, at clubs and parties. And then ecstasy hit the scene and the two go together very well. <laughs> it's true that MDMA makes you like house music. <laughs> so... Uh, then it migrated back to England, and then it really took off. It was called The Summer of Love. It was in uh, 86. So that was called uh, The Summer of Love, and it was when it actually married to the with the free parties uh, scene because there was a scene in England called the free party scene, and it was people would set up sound systems in a field, and it was a free party. I mean, usually a rock music or psychedelic rock music, and um, then everybody would just hang out in the field and party all night. And uh, they were doing some psychedelics and, you know, drinking and whatnot. It's a party scene. And they pop up, you know, spontaneously. Well, when house music came back to England from Ibiza and the E came in, it performed this perfect storm of the all-night dance party, the underground location, the ecstasy, and the house music. And that came together and the, the rave scene was born. And then it kind of migrated all over the world and did different things in different places. Do you know uh, what explains the connection between ecstasy and house music? Well, house music provides, it's not kind of, you know, it's not, it's not music you listen to, it's music you experience. So it's just this driving beat and it creates a momentum and it's a musical momentum that kind of sweeps you up. And then when you're in ecstasy, you just feel very receptive and open and very empathetic. And so you use that beat to go on a transpersonal journey, basically. Mm -hmm. And it sweeps you up in this river of sound and people. And then you connect because it makes you empathetic with yourself, but it also makes you empathetic with everybody around you. So you get these amazing human connections with the driving beat and the journey through the night and this wonderful euphoric feeling that you get from uh, MDMA. So it's, it's kind of a perfect ma marriage and uh, it worked very well for a, a, member, you know, a lot of years. And it was just kind of a happy accident that these two things were paired together? I guess, yeah. Like a lot of things, you know. Yeah. How did they figure out that those two plants made ayahuasca, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are happy accidents that happen all the time. That's great. You earlier said that nothing that you experience when tripping is outside of you. It's all in your head. Right. I have heard tales of people having very similar experiences and like really kind of specific things like meeting like a certain goddess or something like that. What explains that, do you think? Uh, your cultural upbringing. Mm -hmm. So if you do acid in India, you're going to see Shiva and Ganesh. If you do it in, uh, you know, 
in a Christian country, you might see Jesus or the Virgin Mary. But it's really based on your experience and your culture. That's that's how you know that it's part of your imagination. It's not coming from the outside. I don't subscribe to all these uh, supernatural explanations and ayahuasca machine elves and, uh, you know, going through to different dimensions. I don't buy any of that. Yet I am, a you know, a huge proponent of psychedelics for personal transformation and, uh, you know, therapy if you need it and uh, just general enjoyment of life. So. Yeah, I don't think you need. I mean, we like we love to we love to de- make up these supernatural explanations for things, because I guess we're fascinated with stories and mythology and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I've never been attracted to that, and um, it's not necessary to get all all the benefits from psychedelics. It's not necessary to make up stories about, you know, space aliens or entities from other planets or multi dimensions or any of that. <laughs> Completely superfluous. You would describe yourself as like beyond atheists, as an anti-theist, right? An anti-theist, yeah. That means that even if it was true, even if the Old Testament God was the real creator of the universe and everything in the Old Testament was true, I would be part of the resistance. I would be leading the resistance against that tyrannical, theocratic, psychopathic government. (laughs) Boy. Because it's a horrible, horrible idea that, uh, that this God is, you know, making you born in sin, commanding you to be well, and then looking when judging everything you do all through your life and even after you die. I mean, talk about, you know, a theocratic, uh, totalitarian, North Korean type regime. <laughs> I, would be, I would be railing against that. Obviously, that's not a unique position. There are people who think that, but I think it's unique to this podcast, which is a little bit unexpected because it is like I don't describe it as a libertarian podcast, but I and most of my guests and my audience are libertarians. And so sort of rebelling against the authority is sort of part and parcel with that. How did you come to that sort of view of the Christian God? Were you raised religious? Not really, no. Although, you know, the usual saying in the English schools, you have to sing hymns in the morning sure. and you have to learn the Lord's Prayer. I mean, to me, it was always baffling and I never really bought it. I can't remember ever remembering a time where I actually, I was always like baffled by it. I was like, what? What are you saying? Like, what's that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Anyway, I never, I never really, you know, got it. You know, and then, of course, I questioned it. And I have studied the world's religions. I mean, I've done a lot of meditation. Sure. I've traveled all over in India, ashrams and, you know, Buddhist places. And, and so I'm aware of, I'm aware of uh, world religions. And um, I read the Bible from cover to cover. I read it from start to finish because I wanted to know what was in it. And uh, I was shocked and appalled. And, uh, you know, I would recommend uh, that everybody reads it because it's so disgusting it's so i mean the the the, the old testament god is a psychopath he kills everything he slaughters everything in front of him. every man woman child every animal everything that crawls every babe in arms kill them all that's his that's his solution like over and over and over again he commits these mass uh, murders these genocides essentially the idianites and the midianites and the is is even wipes out the israel israelites a couple of times and he just kills everybody. What should we do, oh Lord? What should we do with this person who's you know, praying to the wrong God on a Sunday? And oh, kill him! You know, that's his, that's his response to everything. And so I don't know how you. I don't know how anybody got this myth of a of a loving God. I didn't find it in the Bible. So 
I guess to, and I, I appreciate your point of view on that. I personally am on sort of a journey back to Christianity. So I, I'm not quite sure where I'm at in that journey. Obviously, I have a different conception of the Old Testament, you know, while not denying, you know, the things that you just said. So I guess if you were going to, so like I've never done psychedelics and I've had now, I think you're probably the third and a half person who's come on to either talk about this or where it's come up. And I'm still a little bit scared and I don't, I don't really know why. I think part of it is just like, you know, I'm scared that I'm going to discover something that causes me to completely alter the life that I'm currently living, which I kind of like. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible, but it's not going to supplant that. It's not going to replace your life. It's going to enhance your life. Mm-hmm. It's going to add another dimension and another layer. It's not going to negate any, 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 any of your life that you have now. It's not going to wipe anything out. It's only going to add to it. I'd recommend a uh, quarter of a hit of acid, nice long walk in the woods with a close friend, and uh, you might find that you don't need religion. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people find religion doing acid, which is also an interesting thing, I think. Well, I think it amplifies, you know, like I say, it amplifies it. So if you have sure. that mindset that religion is a real thing and uh, that you know, God is a real thing, then it'll amplify that, that feeling. But it can also make you think. And if you apply critical thinking to the religious propositions, you'll find that they fall apart really quickly. All right. I need to find some woods to go walk in, I think. Okay. Probably probably before it gets too cold because I live in Minnesota and it's (laughs) it's just going to be brutal. Um, Read read my book before you do it. Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz. Yeah, absolutely. I'm working my way through it. It's a good read. It seems like a quick read. There's a lot of pages to it, but they're they're definitely turning quick. So, is there anything else that you'd like to me like me to link to? Do you have a Twitter or like a uh, website a web, or anything? I have a website which is jimmyfritz.ca. jimmyfritz.ca as I'm typing it out so I don't forget. Okay, awesome. Jimmy, I really appreciate you joining me tonight. It has been a blast talking to you. And I really hope that I can help get the word out because I think that this kind of thing is going to change the world. Are there any closing thoughts? No, I think that's good. I think we did it all. We said it all. Awesome. And uh, nice talking to you, James. Yeah, you too. Okay, bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. All right, thanks to Jimmy for joining me today. And thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget, I'm giving away a lifetime master membership of Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can find that at woods.blackbirdpodcast.com. You'll just need to click a link, throw in your email address and name to enter the drawing. I'm going to be drawing the names on September 20th, so make sure to sign up before then. And that's it for this episode of Blackbird. I will see you on the next one. Until then, live free.